This episode is brought to you by Prosper Digital. Prosper Digital takes the stress out of growing online stores. Get in touch with us today at prosperdigital.com.au. Welcome to another episode of the Prosper Podcast. I'm sitting here with Glenn. Hey, Jacob. So, man, I want to talk about the UFC. Oh, we were watching it together on, on Zoom. Yeah. Uh, what did you make of of the fight? Conor McGregor's attitude towards the end. I mean, <sighs> just Conor McGregor in general. Yeah. What did you make of him uh, leading to the fight? He's it's re- it's a hard topic because I love him. In in on one hand, and then on another hand, I'm like, bro, he's over the top. Sometimes it's like too much, but that's just the showmanship, right? Yeah. Like it's just part of it all. It's just the way you know. It's the reason that everyone, it's the reason he gets paid so much money. The reason so many people watch is because of that swagger and that mm-hmm. attitude. And it's probably not, you know, authentically him to that extreme. So, but sometimes you kind of like, oh, maybe you shouldn't have said that, but but it, you know, it's just all part of it. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of it this time was quite personal about his. Uh, yeah, your wife's in my DMs. Yeah, <laughs> so wife. like, whoa. And just the Yeah, I not it's hard because I'm not I'm not I haven't been into UFC for very long. So I'm kinda I'm like, oh I know it's all kind of part of it, but it does seem a little over the top. But it sometimes. seems to me that I feel like Connor and I'm I'm a Connor fan, I really respect him and you know, I think he's actually brought a lot of fans to UFC. Yeah, totally. You know? But it it almost felt like he's he's bordering into like WWE territory. Now. A little bit. It doesn't yeah. feel as genuine as, as like when he was winning and he was unstoppable. Yeah. And he had that cocky sort of swagger mm. and he'd talk crap and then go and beat people up in the in the octagon. <laughs> now I think he's been beaten a few times and he's probably low in confidence. Mm. You know, like I, I don't think he was confident going to that fight that he was gonna win, like yeah. he would have back in the day. Um, in the first couple of fights. So it almost felt like a lot of the insults that he was throwing, it did feel like he was really trying to pump himself up for the fight. Mm, maybe. And it didn't feel as genuine to me, but I, I don't know. Let's put it this way, though. Did you watch any of the pre-press conferences or anything like that, like the weigh-ins or any of that sort yeah. of thing? Have you ever watched a weigh-in for anyone else ever? Not, not often. Yeah, I mean, it's that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. At the end of the day, people are tuning in just to see what sort of ridiculous thing or what, you know, whatever the trash talk. Like, you know, people are uh, are watching it because of that, and that's why he's like that. Yeah, you know, he love it or hate it, the people are watching it because of that. That's what makes the money. That's what brings the viewers. And so it's hard to really know, you know, is it all just because because knows that as well, right? He knows mm. that. He knows that it's not as personal as it's made out probably, or maybe it's, I think it's hard to tell, but he would know. Well, it's all that, that hype marketing, you know, like yeah. um, Connor's the king of it. Kanye's the king of it. Yeah. You know, like Nike yeah. is the king of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so kind of leads us into what we're going to talk about today. Which we've got uh, Steve Unane, who's the CEO of uh, Retail Prodigy Group. Yep. Who are the distributors of Nike mm. um, or the master franchise partner of Nike. Uh, we've got him coming on to talk about you know his experience working at Nike. Um, yeah, so I'm pretty excited about that actually. Yeah, it's cool. Really good interview. Really good guy. Has a lot of good wisdom to impart as well. But um, yeah, really balanced dude. <laughs> like yeah. sometimes you, you know, you get the ego. Or you don't have any of that with him. He's just like really balanced. He's got a really good plan and really good reasoning for the way he does stuff. It's yeah, it was a really good interview. I absolutely love the guy. Um, I, I got a lot out of the interview, mm. and I think people who will listen. Uh, will as well so let's get into it do it 
All right, I'm here with Steve. How you doing, man? Yeah, good, Jacob. Yourself? Very well, mate. Look, I think uh, it'd be rude for us to get you on the podcast and not talk about footy to start. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, yes. what did you make of, What did you make oh. of the game? Um, well, look, I think. Uh, well, first of all, I was disappointed. I I wanted, you know, like I wanted the Blues to have the whitewash on on Queensland turf for the first time. That would have been awesome. Um, although, if you're thinking about it purely from a you know origin brand, um, yeah. A better game to watch. Like obviously, it felt more like a state of origin match. Um, having said that, though, I think that um, you know probably Queensland had maybe a slight edge with mm. um, what being on home turf, us not having our halves pairing, um, and um, and their team. So I think, um, to be honest, I think that they probably wouldn't be too happy with only a two point win. Yeah, and I think um, the decision to kick the the goal. What was your thoughts on that? That seemed a bit odd to me. Yeah, I um, it's it, it's it's amazing, really, because clearly, well, not clearly, but my, I suspect that because um, Latrell was so confident mm. that I guess you know everyone probably just said, okay, we'll go for it. If you're that confident of doing it, I wouldn't have thought that was the right strategy. I think they had maybe two minutes left. Yeah, they could have easily kicked a touch, got into their. You know, that's what I expected to happen, and, uh, to be honest. And and they could have put a try on. I thought that was very odd because mm. either way, then it just would have gone to extra time anyway. I would have gone for the the try. Not yeah, the, yeah. The goal. Well, mate. So uh, maybe there's yeah, an assistant coach job odd. that we can tee up, mate. Because uh, <laughs> yeah, I feel like that was a pretty poor coaching decision. Well, so tell me, do you reckon that was coaching, or do you think that was just him? Like, I mean, how, how quickly, like, you know, I guess are those decisions made on the field to coach. Is the coach sending a message right away saying? Take well, the actually, goal, take the goal? I got some some good insight. So, um, as you know, my father in law works at um, uh, Fox Sports. So is my brother, right. and they yeah. um, they're releasing a documentary uh, for the Tigers where they've actually yes. got these behind the scenes. So I got to watch the first two episodes in advance, um, and I noticed that there's a lot of talk between the coach and the you know assistant coach or whoever it is, the trainer on the field. So. It, you know, if, if um, Brad Fittler was anything like Madge, then constantly, you know, barking orders. So I think it would have wow. been a coaching deci- decision. Wow. Well, that's mm. – yeah, I'm not sure about that. It feels to me like I'm not sure it was the right coaching decision um, and not that I'm a soccer fan, but, yeah. you know, was 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 curious about the, um, you know, the game at Wembley, you know, the, um, England and Italy where they, they gave the last kick to a – a young rookie, mm. um, and you think about the amount of pressure that he had on his shoulders, carrying the whole country. Um, my God, you know, for a nineteen-year-old, that's a big call as a coach to, you know, you know, to put him out there to have that shot. So anyway, um, yeah, well, I, that's that. So I'm looking forward to seeing what's what's going to be said about that. Actually, in fact, that that final decision in State of Origin. So I haven't watched 360 yet, so I've taped it waiting to uh, yeah, nice. see, yeah, see what the post-mortem is. Yeah. Well, you should definitely watch that um, that Tigers documentary. It's very interesting. Well, I saw the shorts on it and it looks amazing. I've got yeah. to say it's intriguing to get in, inside of a club and inside of a coach's head and how yeah. – how, uh, yeah, so I did see that that short segment where he's barking instructions to, to stop the game or slow down the game and it, it – it didn't happen. They scored. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. No, it's really good insight. I, I, I really hope that they continue to make documentaries like that because it's just yeah. this new insight where it's like, wow, this is really cool. 
Well, I mean, and good for Madge and the Tigers to allow that to happen, you know, yeah. to let the cameras inside. I mean, that's a that's a big deal. Yeah, I wonder if he, uh, if they'll be happy with the decision after it all airs. <laughs> I've seen That's it, right. so we'll see. So anyway, mate, we could talk yeah. about footy all day, but I know, there you good. go. <laughs> so, mate, you've had a stellar career, you know, working for the likes of, I think you started at Mario or Grace Brothers at the time, uh, before you moved right. to Nike Australia. You worked at Nike in the US, uh, Luxottica, Jeans West, before you co-founded uh, co Retail Prodigy Group. So, mate, did you grow up with these kind of aspirations or did it, did you sort of just, you know, play what was in front of you? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, I think um, uh, sh short answer is no. I, I, um, I was one of those kids that I remember I didn't really enjoy school. Yeah. Um, and I only sort of did enough to just pass. I, I wasn't sort of strong academically. Um, I, you know, I, I mean, looking up the chain of my family, I'm, I'm, I'm one of seven kids, right, and, and my you know, my elder siblings were so smart, you know, and um, always looked up to them in awe of thinking, you know, gosh, they're so bright and they're you know, at uni and they're doing this and doing that. And I thought, you know, it's such a high bar to try and, mm. you know, aspire towards. So when I left year 12, what I actually wanted to do, believe it or not, I was playing in bands and I was a DJ and so. Oh, really? That's um, cool. Yeah. So I, uh, I actually wanted to become a sound engineer. You know, yep. I was fascinated by sound mixing, sound editing. And I applied for a college in Sydney um, to, to, to do a course in sound engineering. And uh, unfortunately, I, um, I missed out on the opportunity. I just um, you know, wasn't able to get in. And then I thought, okay, now what? Because I don't have a plan B. And then uh, I was working casually in retail at the time. Yep. Um, I'm not sure if you, uh, if you ever heard of BBC Hardware. Um, you're probably too young. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, well, it was bought out by, by Bunnings. But anyway. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, so the BBC Hub and Pram over there uh, as a casual, and I then I went full time because uh, I didn't know what to do. And then I remember at the end of my first year full time at BBC Hardware. I remember my manager saying to me, "Look, you're quite good at this retail thing. You know, have you ever thought about having a career in retail?" And um, I said, "Well, look, I, I quite enjoy actually retail, and I." Um, and I think I'm doing a, a good job. So I said, uh, no, yeah, I'd actually like to explore, you know, what, what that might look like. Anyway, long story short, um, what I researched is that many of the big retailers back then, you know, uh, your, your Grace Brothers, your Coles, your Woolies, all those guys, they ran sort of management development programs. So think about it almost like an apprenticeship yeah, uh, where that you come in uh, on a three-year program where you're, you know, uh, working various departments and functions within the, the business, and then and you're studying part time. Yep. So I did a so I did a certificate of management at TAFE, and then got into um, Grace Brothers to do their management development. That's sort of where it all sort of started. I sort of just fell into retail, like many of us do. In fact, you know, I've got a lot of um, friends and peers that started off when I started off, and um, and back then, you know, there was great training and great sort of structure around these programs it really gave you a great a great footing a great foundation um and i look back on those years at grace brothers and Meyer and think that they were the best years in terms of being able to you know set me on the right path towards a, a career in retail yeah and then you got quite heavily involved with nike so you know you worked for nike australia and then you moved to the us um you know now you're you're you know, you're running Nike Australia, all the stores in Australia. So, well, yeah. 
Were you always well, look, affiliated with the brand? Like, did you love it growing up? It's it's, it's funny, you know. I um, uh, so in fact, my younger sister was a, a huge brand fan of Nike. So I yep. remember probably more about Nike through my younger sister. Um, but I was always in a sport, you know. I you know I I, I played rugby league um, uh, at school. I broke my shoulder and then just mm. played touch touch rugby. Played yep. a bit of tennis. So I've always been quite active. Always liked sport. Um, and um, and the opportunity came to join Nike um, back when I was working with Myra in Melbourne because I, I worked between Sydney and Melbourne, so I had a couple of trips back and forth. Um, uh, one of my ex-colleagues at Maya, who went to Nike, then offered me a job to come across to Nike. And my job was, back then, was retail operations manager. I joined in around 1998, mm-hmm. and uh, I was hired to become uh, the retail operations manager, but with a project of opening the first Nike town outside of North America. So on the corner of Burke and Swanson Street, Melbourne, um, we launched, um, yeah, the very first, what's called the Nike town, I guess a flagship yeah, so Nike that? Yeah, cool. In, in Melbourne, um, so that was my that was that's what I was brought on to do, um, and uh, that was quite a successful opening, and the store traded well. and um, And I remember at the time, the global vice president of Nike, his name is Charlie Baker. Mm-hmm. He he came to Australia for the opening of the store, and um, I got to know him uh, through that visit to Australia and uh, to Melbourne. And um, I think he liked what he saw with regards to the opening of the store and then about six months later he gives me a call and says hey um how do you feel about coming to the u.s and running the nike towns in north america huge um (laughs) mate to be honest like i thought he was bullshitting i thought no way i mean seriously i've only been here you know eight or nine months the store hasn't even traded a year um you know i surely i haven't shown enough to be worthy of a role in Mm. the u.s uh with nike i mean it was just like um, it was shocking. I mean, I, I, I like I remember almost falling off my chair when he <laughs> called me. And um, did you know straight away that you wanted to pursue the opportunity? Mate, I was in shock. I, I honestly, I, I thought, uh, yeah, do, do I do this? I thought, is this what is this what it's meant to be? Like, uh, you know, um, moving overseas and packing up and going, and you know, um, uh, look. I mean, I said to Charlie, look, I'm really. I'm flattered. I'm really interested. Can I, you know, can you just give me overnight and I'll come back to you? And I mean, it was always going to be a yes. Yeah. I just that I had to sort of just just gather some composure. Uh, I just had to sort of just <laughs> of course. try and think straight, you know. So, uh, you know, it was it was awesome. I, mean, I just still feel very honoured to have had that opportunity, you know. Um, I ended up going to the US, was there for about three years. And um, what was that like? Oh, my God. I mean, first of all, uh, you know, sort of setting foot on what what Nike's head office, which they call World Campus, mm. it, and it really is like a like Disneyland or a university. I mean, it's a world uh, within its with its own right. I mean, it's it's got everything from you know um, you know soccer fields to running tracks, multiple gymnasiums, wow. um, supermarkets, um, hairdresser. I mean, like it's it, it is it's enormous. Mm. Um, but it's just awesome. I mean, it's uh, each, each building uh, is, is called like an athlete, you know. So I remember I worked in the in the um, Pete Sampras building. Uh, that's where retail wow. were. Um, I mean, just the experiences that I had at Nike were just extraordinary. I mean, 
you know, meeting athletes and um, uh, running events where you had, you know, celebrities and athletes together in a, in a store. I mean, it's just awesome. I mean, look, the brand itself is, you know, obviously, you know, it's one of the most innovative brands in the world. No yeah. doubt about that, sports and fitness. But then it's very inspirational. It's a, it's a brand that once you're, you're around, you can't help but take health and fitness and sports seriously. It mm. does transform your life. I mean, you you start to really embrace everything that you know health and fitness you know can bring to your to your, to your world, to your life. Um, so, he, but I could share with you heaps of great stories that that I had at Nike. That's for sure. Yeah, I recently um, listened to Shoe Dog actually um, ah. on, on Audible, and yeah, that just made me love the brand even more. It's just like such humble uh, beginnings and Phil just seems like it's such a great bloke, you know, a bit crazy, well, but. <laughs> uh, and I've met Phil Knight yeah, like, wow. several times, you know, when I was in the US, I had, you know, I had to even present to him once on a, um, on a retail concept that we were looking to launch. I mean. Um, Did he go ahead with it? Yeah, we went, went oh, ahead with awesome. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was, um, it was women's, it was women's stores called Nike Goddess and we oh, cool. opened, um, we opened up in LA, but um, he, uh, he is just um, just an inspirational guy, and mm. I'm glad you've read Shoe Dog or listened to Shoe Dog. It's an awesome read. Um, I thought I knew a lot about Nike because obviously, you know, you, you get to learn through your induction all the history and heritage, and you get to hear all the stories. But I even learned more stuff in the in the book Shoe Dog. But um, he he's a, he's a for a guy that's had so much influence on sport in this world. Mm. Um, he's very unassuming. He's not arrogant. He's um, s- some could say maybe slightly introvert. Um, he um, unassuming. I mean, he's just just a beautiful person. I mean, he's uh, just but just so inspiring, you know. Um, and so uh, again, just feel privileged to you know to have met him and you know um, and just been around him. Oh, it's so inspirational as well because, you know, he was just a kid that had, I think Absolutely. in the beginning he talks about how he did like a, a report on this concept at, at university or whatever and that's that's, that's right. how Nike started and, you know, that's so right. many that's adversities right. that he had to face and overcome. You know, um, that, that's the one today. thing that I, and that's one thing that, Jacob, that I didn't realise about Phil and the early journey at Nike is that I didn't realise he had so many setbacks. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 I find it fascinating that Nike even exists today you know, like most humans, like myself, I mean, I'd give up after the second or third setback. I mean, I don't know <laughs> yeah. how many setbacks he had. Oh, big ones too, like uh, court cases man, and um, absolutely. cash flow issues. And, you know, he was doing this all over letters as well. He talks about in the beginning how, you know, he was communicating with his team over absolutely. letters. This is crazy. I mean, how much sense of purpose and conviction must you have mm. um, to – Fight through all of those roadblocks and challenges and setbacks that he that he had. I mean, it's. I mean, that's why you know after reading that book, you know, I, I thought myself, Nike should not exist today. Yeah. It should not exist. Um, so uh, yeah, just just you know, I mean, and and I know there's other people like him on the planet, but it's people like that that sort of you know you, you just know help shape shape the world. Mm. I mean, they they really do. These people that are just. Um, just unique, and it's like they have a purpose. They're on this planet for a reason. Yeah, um, so just awesome. Yeah, I could talk about that book a lot, actually. But I yeah, think I know. <laughs> you know, when, when you think about you know the setbacks that we face in, in our smaller businesses, you know, kind of it's encouraging to know that 
Nike went through that in the early days and, you know, they've been able to... Because it kind of seems like such a well-oiled machine. You're like, oh, it's, it's always been like that. But no. you've know, you got to start somewhere. Look, and, and you are right, Jacob. I think that... I wish I'd read that book uh, 10 years ago when I started mm. RPG because I think I could have taken a lot of good lessons from that, you know, uh, yeah, particularly around sense of purpose, conviction, mm. resilience, because, you know, we, you know, we've had setbacks as well. Um, yeah, I mean, COVID in, last year, you had to shut how many stores? Uh, 45 stores, just just like that, you know, mm. just shut all our stores, went dark. And, you know, when you're a business, when, when, when you're a business where you don't really have like an e-commerce channel, you know, mm. an online channel, you know, you're essentially turning off the tap of cash flow, sort mm. of like saying, well, okay, stores are closed, no more sales. No one knew back then how long it was going to go for. So you, your mind started working through all these different sort of what-if scenarios and and you couldn't help but go into some of the negative scenarios, obviously, mm. in terms of planning what that might end up looking like. So, uh, but again, um, nothing in comparison to what, you know, to what Phil Knight dealt with back in the Oh, mate, I think it was pretty significant. And, you know, um, the fact that you're you're still around today and, and you've got a happy team is testament to, to your leadership through that time. Oh, look, thanks. Look. Look, I mean, I think, um, you know, I've often said to people that, you know, well, people have asked me, what's been your biggest learning through the period? And it's clearly a hard one to answer because there's a lot of learning. So to think about what's the one biggest one. And I think what I'd say is that when things um, are at their toughest or at their lowest point, culture, culture matters most. Mm. It's, it's culture that gets you through. Um, because, I mean, no one had a, you know, a playbook, a game plan for COVID. I mean, no one knew it was going to happen. Like, so, um, but I was in awe of my team, seeing how they just sort of stood up and, you know, you know, took the reins and kicked in a gear. And, and to be honest, I didn't feel like I actually added a lot of value. I, I, I felt <laughs> like my team just knew what had to be done and just yeah, got wow. it done. And it's, um, and that's sort of for me, you know, that's culture. When you mm. see your team just, you know, have the intuition and the judgment to just know what to do. And and and, uh, and how amazing that, you know, when you think about sporting analogy, right, you know, you think about, and I shouldn't talk about, you know, the Queensland team, but, <laughs> you know, I mean, they're often held up as sort of how culture carries yeah. that, you know, that, that team. And even down to the dying seconds of a game, they can be behind, they can win. And so... There's no game plan for that. There's no strategy for that. That's just all about culture and attitude and desire. And, you know, so so I think for me, yeah, look, you know, I think we made a lot of good decisions in terms of how to navigate through COVID. I think we stood by our team through that period of time. Um, we had a great brand partnership with Nike. They stood by us, have supported us, good relationships generally with our suppliers and vendors. Um, but ultimately it was the team that were, out in the stores that were prepared to um, adapt to the, the situation and mm. then and then go back to stores when we were able to reopen, knowing that they were putting themselves in harm's way, I guess, with COVID. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, culture for me was the big standout through, through COVID as it relates to how RPG navigated through that time. And how do you cultivate culture? Is it something that organically happens or do you have to be strategic and really invest in it? Look, look, it is the latter. Uh, so one thing's for certain, 
culture develops, whether you like it or not, culture will develop, culture will form. It will be. Yep. The big question is, is it, is it going to be what you want it to be? And so, therefore, it suggests that you have to work on it like strategy. Mm. Like you have to be very considered about identifying what you want your culture to look like, and that's normally around what are the behaviours you want to be seen by your team, you know, um, and then you start building the framework from that. So, you know, we, we have, for example, what's called the RPG blueprint, but it's just right behind me here where, you know, not only do we just talk about the purpose, but we also talk about the five values of the company and then the five fundamentals. And so essentially on one page, we've got a navigational tool, uh, almost like a roadmap that anybody can pick up in our team in, across our business, whether you're a, four, a casual that does four hours a week or whether you know, that you're the COO. Yep. And, and that's, the, you know, that's the roadmap. That should be the one thing that helps guide every decision that you make, helps shape the behaviours uh, in the organisation, guides policy procedures, systems, processes. All that stuff has to be very considered when you're thinking about the culture you want to have because they all play a role in culture. Yeah. Um, and did you design uh, that blueprint yourself? Yeah, look, it started, actually, it's funny, you know, when we first started 10 years ago, uh, you know, myself, um, well, actually, I should have said, so I mentioned Charlie Baker earlier. Yes. He was that, he was the vice president of Nike US who came to Australia and offered me the job. He's actually the, co- the other co-founder of RPG, believe it or not. So we ended up uh, becoming partners and started RPG 10 years ago. Um, but to answer your question, so very early on, um, uh, myself, Charlie, and then the, the, the two other teammates that joined us, our first, our first two teammates were a guy called Andrew McDonald, a guy called Macca, and then a guy called Michael Gaifer. Yeah. Um, we, we went away on an offsite. We just went down to, to Cape Shank um, down here, you know, played a round of golf and then just, and just had a workshop for a day or two. And, and that was the start of paper, what we wanted the culture to look like. And we did this very simple exercise where we said, let's take all of our collective experiences in all the different companies that we've worked with over the years and, and put on two, you know, on two sheets of paper. You know, what did we love about the companies we work for and what did we hate about the companies mm. we work for? So clearly it was very clear that we just had to tear up the, you know, the, the stuff that we just did not want to be like. Yep. And then yep. that's what started shaping the, uh, that what is today our blueprint. Because what's interesting, when you're starting out, you know, you've only got a few stores. I mean, I knew everybody by name. Um, so regardless if you worked in Perth or you worked in Sydney or you worked in Melbourne, I knew every team member in our stores by name. Um, so as the custodian of the culture, I was able to communicate directly with people and uh, talk about our culture, demonstrate mm. through my behaviours the culture we want. So it's easy when you can do that one-on-one, face-to-face. As you grow, then you start hiring more people. You start putting levels into your organisation. So therefore, you're trusting and empowering others to deliver the message and be able to live by the culture. So it was then that we said, well, we need a blueprint. We need a roadmap. We need something that everybody uh, refers to when they're, um, you know, when, when they're onboarded into RPG and then helps guide their decisions. Um, yep. Yep. So now, but it just gets harder. The bigger you get, the more people you bring on, 
that's where you've got a higher risk of having your culture diluted because mm. what it takes is for one person that's not aligned uh, to your values and they can have a, a detrimental effect on your culture. Yeah. The key thing is being able to identify those people quickly and either correcting their performance or, or, or I guess, exiting them from the business. Yeah, and do you find that the culture can be picked up by anyone or is there like this person fits in with the culture, this person doesn't fit in with the culture? Um, it's probably not as black and white as that. It's probably yep. somewhere in the middle. So what we do, you know, we've got five values. We've got, you know, for example, example of five values, might, you know, we've got care. Um, so you've got to be someone that's, you know, caring. We've got coach, which means you're someone that, you know, wants to help others, train others, mm. develop others, regardless of what role you're in. You know, you've got um, energy is one of our values. So positive attitude, can-do attitude, um, you probably know uh, one of my colleagues, Frank. Yep. High on energy, right? <laughs> Just gets gets shit done, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. He um, can do absolutely. So, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Yep. Um, there's one that's around accountability. So that's mm. one where that's a bit part. That's about look, you know, you know, we're a business. You know, we're going to still make money, and you know, it's it's about high performance. And then the last one is about innovation, so mm. creativity and new ideas, and never being settled. So. We take those five values and then through our interview process, we've got ways of asking you questions to try and see of those five values, how much of a matchup do we get? Yep. It's not a perfect science and no one's ever perfect, but what we look for is bits of those five values in every, every person we bring on board. And the one thing we don't compromise is the care. So mm. because we're a company that has a purpose about providing the ultimate custom experience, that's got to be through a, people that have a genuine care for other people. If you don't have that, you, you, like you're not going to make it at RPG. Mm. Do you find most people do have that care or is it a rarer trait? Yeah. No, I'd say, well, put it this way, it's hard to find people that have a genuine care for customers. Because, mm. look, I mean, you know, we've got a tough – it's – it's a tough gig in retail because working on the shop floor in retail is not a sexy job, right? Mm. It, it doesn't have a lot of positive PR, right? Let's face it. You know, people don't look at retail people and say, oh, that's an amazing job you've got yeah. there. You know, I wish I was doing that job, right? So we've got a bit of a tough job as retailers to promote retail as a viable career for young people. And it is. I mean, I'm, I'm an example of that. And there's many other people that have example of that that started off on the shop floor, right? So we'll find people that want to do that role and then we've got to then make sure that they've got this real genuine authentic uh, value of actually wanting to put a smile on a customer's face. Now, as you can imagine, that's pretty hard to get in an interview. Yeah. So you've got to try, you've got to try and get there. But what you do find out very quickly is that during their six-month probation on the shop floor, you very quickly know whether or not someone is genuinely wanting to serve a customer and put a, a smile on a customer's face. So now, um, how many staff have you got now? What is it, 700 or 500? Or uh, eight, it's 800 oh, now because we've just onboarded Samsung into the mix as well. We've got Samsung as one of our brands. So that came with 10 stores and we've got about another 100 people in the business. So, Huge. yeah, just, just over 800 um, and uh, and still growing. So what, what's a week like in, in your role now that you, know, you said <laughs> earlier that you used to call, you know, the 25 staff that you had or whatever it was. Um, now yeah. you've got 800. It's impossible for you to even be aware of everyone probably. So, 
Yeah, look, um, you know, it's sort of interesting as in terms of my personal evolution over the 10 years in terms of like 10 years ago, I mean, I was very hands-on. I mean, I was doing timesheets and rosters for stores and signing off payroll and hiring staff and training. I mean, I was right in there, right, hands-on. As as we've grown, you know, obviously we've brought on more people that can take over those sorts of roles so that enables me to be a bit more strategic, a bit more thinking forward. Um, You know, they talk about, you know, working in the business versus working on the business. In the early days, very much in the grind. Um, and, I, and I knew that I had to sort of start to over time start working on the business. Um, fast forward 10 years later, I've got, you know, a leadership team um, that represent each of the key functions of the business. So whether you're talking store operations or you're talking buying or you're talking marketing, you're talking finance or HR, right? So I've got every function represented by um, one of my leadership team members. And now my time is... Well, certainly got plenty of time to to work on the business. So I think more strategically about the business. But I'd say that I'd say that probably fifty percent of my time is, in terms of my mind, is consumed by people and culture. Mm. I'm always thinking about the people of the business. Always thinking about the culture of the business. Um, it, it's 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 funny, but after ten years, we're just in, we've just completed our very first cultural survey. Um, so we're now going to get some data on our, our culture. You know, it's a hard one to measure, right? So, yeah. but we've, you know, we've we've uh, worked with an external consultant, and we've just finished the survey. So we're now waiting for the results. But, but sorry, what I should have said is that, yeah, half of my time is always thinking about people and culture, and probably the other half is uh, the commercials and the strategy. Yeah, of the cool. Business. So, do you invest a lot of your time into that leadership team that you formed, in the hopes that they'll yeah. invest in the people un- underneath them? Yeah, it's, yeah. Look, you know, because I think as leaders, you've got to think about, you know, who, who's your circle of influence. Yeah, you know, who's the people you can influence the most? Um, for me, that's the leadership team. You know, so you know, so we spend uh, three hours together every month. You know, we have a you know uh, like a meeting uh, every month. Each uh, each uh, half, we have an offsite just to keep the team yeah, uh, awesome. learning and challenged and, you know, across, you know, where the business is heading. So, yeah, most of my time is with the leadership team. Um, uh, look, you know, when, you know, when we're not in COVID, I like to be out in stores, you know, because I still fundamentally believe that that's where you get the true insights and ideas is from the front line. Yeah, you're cool. talking to your team on the shop floor or, you, you know, you're learning about what the customer's talking about, what they're saying. Um so I think it's important for me to make sure that I always allow time. I probably haven't been great at that. I probably maybe allowed COVID to be a bit more, be a, a bit of a roadblock. Mm. Um, I've got to get better at sort of making sure I, you know, don't ever forget that I've got to allocate time there. So with 700 staff, is it really about people or is it about process at that point in terms of managing a business yeah. of that size? It's, it's a bit of both, right? So what ends up happening is that as you grow, you you start to bring in more process, you bring in more governance, you bring in more policies and procedures, right? But what ends up happening is that if you're doing that in isolation to the culture that you're trying to create, you can create bureaucracy, you can create processes that in fact are counter 
to your purpose of providing the ultimate customer experience. So let me give you an example of that, right? So one of our five fundamentals is what's called uh, our drills. Now, drills are systems and processes. Now, we say that our drills need to be simple, efficient, and effective because our goal is to ensure that if, you're, if you work in our stores, we've got to make sure that as a support team here in, in Melbourne that we make the lives of our store people as easy as possible so we create as much face time with them and our customer. Yeah, cool. So if we've got a lot of process and systems and bureaucracy that means that we've got our staff in our stores doing tasks and in the back room and doing this and that and not on the shop floor serving customers, then we've failed to uphold our culture of providing the ultimate customer experience. See, the two things work together um, and it's an ongoing process. I, I often say that the, the bureaucracy exists in every company. It's just that you can't always see it. So what you've got to do, you've got to hunt it down and kill it. You've got mm. to find it. And the only way to find it is to go to, the, to where it's going to be, where, where it is, and that's going to most likely be on the front line. Um, so we're, we're always looking for ways to try and identify poor process um, and then try and find better, I guess, better ways. But, yes, but the processes are important because, you know, as you've got 800 people, you've got to make sure they're very clear about, you know, policies, um, you know, uh, you know, particularly HR-type policies where you're dealing with customers and yeah. people. Um, you know, there's as retailers, we've got to be very compliant um, around the fair work and the, yeah. and the retail award. So you've got to make sure you've got the policies are all compliant. So there, there is a fair bit of admin work that has to be done. I think the idea, though, is not let that, that become the main game. Yeah, it's, sure. I mean, these are just structures and processes that sit you know, the team to ensure that they can win the game. Does it blow your mind to know that you've got 800 people in your team? <laughs> it does at times. Because it's almost you know, hard like to visualise, isn't it? Yeah, I have to be reminded of that. Um, that um, yeah, we, you know, we've, we've grown a lot. And, you know, like, like it is one of the things I'm most proud of is our culture and our people and, you know, and the fact that because of RPG, yeah, we've touched the lives of many people. Yeah, because that's just eight hundred today. I mean, you know, we have turnover, so I'm talking thousands and thousands of people that would have worked through RPG over ten years. Uh, And look, I always hope to think and like to think that it's been a positive experience for them. Yeah, and I know it hasn't been for everybody, but but what I often say to our team members when they join RPG is that I don't care if you're with us for a short time or a long time. Just just learn. You know, so that you're when you leave leave RPG, you, you you're a, a better a better person for it. That's awesome. And just give us your best. Just yeah. give us your, so whether you're doing four hours a week or forty hours, well, it doesn't matter. It's just give us your best and learn while yeah. you you know while you're with us. So take me back ten years ago to when you uh, went to start Retail Prodigy Group. How did that come about? Oh gosh, um, I only just I was only just talking about this the other day actually. <laughs> yeah. So. Talk about talk about a an opportunity that now I suppose this could be this could be a um, you know like I guess another like analogy to shoe dog where technically RPG there's more reasons why it shouldn't exist than why it should exist because <laughs> yeah. um, because I remember so again Charlie Baker uh, yeah. I'll try and keep a long story short because it's a little bit long yeah. is that um, I was actually working for Jeans West time right so I was CEO of Jeans West based in Melbourne. Um, Charlie Baker, uh, living in Portland, Oregon in the US, 
um, you know, and obviously because, you know, you know, we knew each other, we'd sort of stay in touch. Anyway, um, he happened to be in Sydney um, and he just called me out of the blue and said, hey, look, Steve, I'm, look, I'm in Sydney. Look, I know that, you know, this is short notice, but, hey, if you happen to be around, I'd love to, you know, grab, grab dinner with you. And I said, well, Charlie, that's, that's bizarre. I said, because I'm actually in Sydney. I'm doing store business with Jeans. Let's grab dinner tonight. Anyway, so we went to uh, went to Cafe Sydney in um, I think you probably know Cafe Sydney in Circular yep. uh, Key there, um, and and never forget that night because we we're just talking about all sorts of things. You know, what are you doing? What am I doing? You know, and obviously the topic of Nike always comes up because we both work for Nike. Sure. Um, and I sort of said to him, "Hey, look, um, uh, hey, just want to let you know that yeah, Nike is looking for a a retail partner here in Australia. You know, to open stores and all that sort of stuff. And I'm just sharing it with him as just information. You know." And I remember he um, and he just paused and he said, he said, what? He said, you're telling me that Nike want a like a retail partner here in Australia. I said, yeah. I said, look, um, uh, look. I said I looked at it when I was at Jeans West. You know, we we actually considered doing it. You know, with Jeans West, but anyway, that you know that didn't like eventuate. And he said, well, why don't we do it? And I said, well, um, well. <laughs> Um, actually felt like the phone call I had with him, you know, when he offered me the job in the US, right? <laughs> um, yeah. You know, again, just stumbling for words. I sort of said, look, Charlie, look, uh, as, look as much as I'd love to do it, um, I said, look, I've got two kids, got a just built a house, huge mortgage, got a great job. I said, I can't afford to take that risk at this time in my life. And um, he um, he said, well, you know, say, say if I was to show, you know, show you that um, or demonstrate to you this is possible, I could... Yeah, I could find a way to make this sort of work where, you know, you know, like you might have to take a salary deduction, but it won't have to be, you know, to zero, but we can yeah. we can get this business started, get some capital and get going. And I said, look, Charlie, I said, um, I'd love nothing more to get it done. I don't think it's going to happen. I said, but, yeah, I'll keep an open mind. Anyway, long story short, um, uh, we, uh, yeah, we're able to uh, source some capital and get the business started and, you um, um, Look back on that time now as uh, a big decision, a big turning point in my life. And I remember, you know, going home to my wife Deb and sort of saying to her, "Look, you know, you know that we chatted about this, and what do you think?" And uh, I said, "Look, I don't think I should do this." I said, "I just think it's too much of a risk with the kids at school and the house." And she said to me, "Oh, what's the worst thing that? Well, I don't know. We'd, we'd lose the house. We'd, you know." She goes, "Well, we could just get a smaller house, couldn't we?" I said, "Well, yeah." Um, <laughs> And she said, um, she said, Steve, look, I know you well enough. She said, look, if you don't do this, you're going to always be wondering what if. You're always going to be regretting it. And she said, look, just, just do it. Just get it done and, you know, and we'll figure it out. And uh, she said, look, she said, one thing I know about you is that you know retail and you know Nike. And she goes, I said, yeah, you're right. And she goes, well, back yourself and just, mm. you know. And so, you know, again, you know, some very powerful words from Deb back then, um, which really I thought was a brave move on her part. Yeah, like kids were, you know, she's almost going. a co-founder. Yeah, we absolutely, and she and she did some work with us in the <laughs> early days. Um, actually, I think you'll find this funny, Jacob, based yep. on your experience. But she actually built our very first website with no experience. Oh, wonderful! <laughs> <laughs> was it any good? Um, of course, I've got to say, what? Well, yeah, probably is. <laughs> I love it's not that. the one we have today, but but yeah, she built our first. She, she just went online and did a self tutorial. Oh, awesome! It's, it's great to have a supportive partner. I think it is know, as, oh. as an entrepreneur. So I'm very grateful Absolutely. to have a support, supportive wife. Um, oh, I mean, yeah, mate. Like you know how important that is, and yep. you know, I think particularly when you're taking risks in life, I think um, you know, knowing that you've got someone that's going to be beside you if it doesn't work, yep. uh, it's just it's just 
Awesome. And we build up these stories in our heads, don't we? Where it's like, oh man, there's, you know, I'm just trapped. I've, I've got to make sure that I do this and I do that. But, you know, really, we live in a great country where we'll always have food on the table and a roof over You're our head. On. You know, so. You're think, spot on. Like, I, I think in the end, you just have to sort of go in eyes wide open. You need to sort of understand what is the worst case scenario. Yeah. And if no one's dying, then it's probably not a bad <laughs> scenario. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I, I know that sounds pretty harsh, but. Yeah, but like we build it up in our heads like, it, it, like somebody could die, you know? It's, 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 yeah. it's very interesting. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I think so, um, that's the difference between people, you know, entrepreneurs that are successful and people that always say, what if? It's just taking a risk yeah. at the right time. And, yeah. you know, it sounds like you had a great opportunity. So, I mean, what, what advice would you give to others that have an opportunity, you know, come by, maybe not as big as, you know, Nike, but when they're in that stage of thinking, you know, should I, should I take this? this risk or should I stay in my stable job? What advice would you give? Yeah, well, I, I, um, I often think that the best decisions are made when you, when you balance the decision with your head, your heart, and your gut. Mm. Um, I think those three things together is, you know, if they can all be somewhat in sync, then, then you're making the right decision. So, but I think you've got to allow... You know, for example, when it comes to, you know, your head, well, yeah, make sure you do your due diligence, you know, do your business plan, you know, know what the size of the prize is, but also know what the worst case scenario is. You've got to know that. So you're going in there eyes wide open, right? So you know off the bat what does failure look like, and, but you only want to look at that once. You don't want to dwell on it, but you just need to know what it is. Like yep. what, is, what, is what does failure look like and how bad is that? But clearly, you want to stay focused on the size of the prize. You want to stay focused on the, you know, on the end game. I mean, you know, that's that's what that's the motivating factor. Mm. Um, you know, your heart is all that sort of the, the, you know, the emotional stuff. You know, the uh, how you're going to feel about it. Like, are you, you know, in terms of your um, your self worth, your your legacy, your impact you're going to have on other people, your family. You know. Your kids, like it's yeah. that that sort of stuff. You know, what's your heart telling you? Is it, you know, um, is there enough passion there? And then the gut, you know, that's just that intuition. And that's about the gut thing for me is about a bit like what Deb said to me. Well, like you know, you, you've got the experience. You've been in retail for twenty years, and you've worked for Nike. So, mm. um, like you know, you're the man for the job. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you know that gut intuition. So I'd say you, you want to allow, you almost want to isolate those three and you want to think about um, those three things. And then in the end, you just follow your gut. I, I really believe in that. And um, because I think what happens sometimes is you've heard of, you know, like analysis paralysis. Sometimes yeah. you can overanalyze an opportunity to the point that you talk yourself out of it. So you've got to be careful you don't sort of get too caught up in the analysis because any reason why not to do it. So you, you, it's a, it really is a juggling. Yeah, it's managing the um, risk, isn't it? Risk versus reward. You know, what's the what's You're the reward on. versus what is the risk? You know, and spot on. I think um, it's, there's no point putting your house up if it's the reward is you know a business that's probably just going to pay you a salary that you're not going to really enjoy um, yeah. versus something that could be eventually 800 staff. You know, yeah. Well, and and then what I'd say finally is that. Be honest with the, your weaknesses mm. so that as you're building this plan, surround yourself with people that are smarter than you in the areas that you're not good at. So, for example, I had no idea how to do a cash flow 
you know, model over five years, right? Uh, look, I knew conceptually what cash flow was about, but I had no idea. So when it came to the business proposal, for example, and I was trying to work out how much capital do we need to raise if, you know, if we want to open up X stores over X amount of years, how much capital do we need? And um, so we now go back to the start of this, uh, you know, this, this, this call and, um, and talk about my, you know, my eldest siblings. Well, my eldest brother, Joe, is a smart guy, right? So I knew he'd be able to help me. So I went to Joe and said, look, this is what I want to do, but I don't know how, you know, how to work out how much money I'm going to need to, to raise. Anyway, so long story short, he, he worked on the financial forecast, the economic model, cash flow, P&L, and we landed with a number and he said, this is the number you need to raise, Stephen. He said, if, you know, he said, this, this is the number. And that's the number we, you know, we ended up raising and, wow. and it turned out to be the number we needed. Wow. I mean, it's so, so, but you know, thanks to Joe. Yeah. I mean, I always, <laughs> always thank my brother, Joe, and I hope he's listening because yep. uh, Joe, Joe's one of my mentors and just, uh, and I guess being your older brother, um, yeah, it's always nice to know you've got, you know, you've got someone like that around you, but I guess my advice to those people are don't go it alone. Don't think you've got all the answers yourself because you won't, mm. uh, allow yourself to, um, be you know acknowledge your weaknesses and make sure you've got people around you that can help you in the areas that you know you know that you're weak in mm. um i mean i mean even with the business partnership with charlie you know we were conscious that we didn't want to step in step on each other's toes so we had to sort of decide who was going to do what and that was both playing to our strengths and playing to our passion um yep. so but yeah but that'd be the advice i would give yeah that's awesome um so what's driving you these days you know you've you've Got an RPG to this huge size. What what drives you to take it to the next level? Um, look, I, I, I've always got a growth a growth mindset. So I, you know, growth for me is always what drives me. And look, you know, not not everything we've done, uh, Jacob, has worked. You know, we mm. we had a brand called Timbuk Two that we picked up from the US that that failed during COVID. Yeah, we've got a brand Tom's that has had a very rocky road, particularly in bricks and mortar. Yeah. Um, so. But, you know, those setbacks don't stop me and make me think, well, okay, stop looking at new brands. You know, you know you've obviously made some mistakes. Um, I think Samsung's an example of something that drives me now. It's a, it almost reminds me of going back 10 years when we started Nike, like because we are starting with Samsung and there's a lot of parallels and, and a lot of similarities between the partnership with Samsung and Nike. So, but always looking for that next thing, whether it's a, a new brand, a new market, a new channel. Mm. And I'm sure you know, Jacob, that, you know, particularly, you know, the help you've given us on, right, in the digital space, you know, that was a whole new channel for us. Mm. You know, we had none of that before you came on board. And so, um, yeah, so that's another example. So just looking for these growth opportunities yep. is something that, that drives me. But probably now more so I, I'm starting to um, allow more time to be on advisory boards and helping others. And, um, you know, I'm on the board of the Australian Retailers Association. I have been out for two years and I love that because it's an industry that served me well. It's I'm only here because of retailers and industry. So being on a body of the, like the, uh, the ARA, the Australian Retail Association, gives me a chance to actually find a way to contribute and give back to the industry. Um, I'm helping out with a, a, a local theatre company here in Melbourne, believe oh, cool. it or not. And, um, and just exploring other sort of. You, do you like theatre yourself? Like, is that a passion project? The theatre. 
Yeah, yeah. Look, it is a little bit. You know, my kids. Well, my, um, I guess my sister's an actress, and oh, cool. um, you know, and my kids are both in the arts. You know, um, both love their music and film and television, and so yeah, just a, just something. Uh, this and and again, and maybe that's a bit about going back to my early days of you know playing in bands and yeah. getting back to maybe you know. Um, but that's just also something just complete, and it's also I think about surrounding yourself with people that you don't normally surround yourself with each day. Mm. See, if I'm always surrounding myself with people in retail. I'm only going to keep getting what I'm getting, whereas other industries, it's, it's amazing things you learn and just the creativity that comes out of that, the ideas you get from talking to someone that might be, a, I don't know, um, a head of production for a, a theatre company or someone that does um, sound or whatever, mm. yeah, just how they think. It's and a different world. Spark. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but um, no, look, I've, I've still got a passion for retail. I, I mean, I love what I do. But I think the one thing that just probably inspires me most is just the team, the, the people, um, yeah. you know, and just and just their accomplishments. So, um, yeah. Just one more question awesome. on the, uh, you know, the early days. How did you find out that you got the Nike deal, the partnership, and, and how did you celebrate? Ah, right. Gosh. that's Now, you know, no one's ever asked me that question. Really? There you go. That's a, that's a, no one has ever yeah, asked me that question. Because I've always thought, so, I'm like, I, wonder, I wonder what that was like because that would have been huge. Well, um, <laughs> you would think so. Um, I, I don't um, – so really what it was, it was actually myself and Charlie and Andrew and Michael, the, the four of us, um, uh, uh, and also uh, a couple of guys at Nike at the time that, that signed the deal with us. Look, we just went out for, for dinner and some drinks and um, celebrated and toasted the, the milestone I think the real partying and the fun happened when we went to Cape Shank and had some real fun there and, you know, celebrated, had played some golf and then um, and then found some time to do some work on the blueprint. But um, Did you know it was coming was like you felt like, yep, we, we're going to get this deal or was it like did you get a call and just be like, yeah, wow, we actually uh, pulled we, this off? Uh, so, so it was a competitive process. There was a party that was, um, that was also pitching for it at the same time. So we knew there was some competitive tension there. We thought we had, we had the edge because myself and Charlie – came from Nike. So yep. we thought that that's probably going to, you know, bode well for us. And it, it sort of did. Um, um, yes, I do remember, uh, I do remember the phone call that I got. Um, the managing director at the time of Nike is a guy called Paul Faulkner. Um, uh, he, uh, he called me and, uh, and gave me the great news. And um, um, yeah, look, it was one of those, again, one of those moments where, you know, you just sort of think, wow, you know, another great moment. And, and it's funny, just just the other day um, we went out for dinner with Paul uh, and Dallas, another guy from Nike that, um, you know, that were around when we signed the deal 10 years ago and, and we took them out for dinner and thanked them for their, uh, you, know, uh, you know, for their partnership over the period. So um, that, was, that, that was cool to go back and reflect on that as well. Yeah, well, mate, I've done my job. I've asked you a question you've never been asked before. So <laughs> we can probably wrap it up there. Thanks so much for coming on, mate. It's been a pleasure talking mate, to you and felt like I've learned a lot. Uh, well, look, uh, always a pleasure. And um, it's a shame that we couldn't uh, watch uh, State of Origin right at the MCG this year. But, I know, uh, you know mate, maybe next year. And maybe next year. And, mate, the Eels going to win today? <laughs> Say again? Do you think the Eels are going to win this, this uh, afternoon, 6 o'clock game? Yeah, they will. But look, I mean, as 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 much as I hate to say this, because you know, I love my eels, yeah. um, uh, but they're not going to make the uh, final four. Mm. I I can't see it. I, I'd love them to. I think they're going to. I think they're going to probably just drop their bundle a little bit. 
Uh, again, I hate to say that, um, yep. but you know, I, they just lack consistency. Mm. Um, I, I'd love to be surprised, obviously, but um, I guess, um, and and I and I and I'd love to be wrong. Yeah, uh, well, let's hope so, mate. Let's hope so. Yeah. <laughs> All right, mate. We'll chat with you soon. All right, mate. Take care. All the best. Thanks for listening. 